How you guys doing? A little better than a few minutes ago? Because the first time I said it, you, only one person responded to me. So we're doing a little bit better. Um, um, my voice is still gone. It's still basketball season. Even though I didn't go to a game on Friday or Saturday, but um, it's still gone. Um, I am... I'm excited about kind of today's message, but I'm, I'm excited for a different reason that this is, you know, if you recognize like um, people talk about there's two different types of brains that we have. There's the emotional brain, right? And then there's the parental brain, right? And when we recognize the, both of those things in that, um, those are two things. And oftentimes the first brain that receives information is the emotional side of your brain. Right. And then that generates this emotion in you. And then the, your parental brain tries to come in and make sense of what's going on in you with your emotions. Right. And so oftentimes that's what's going on inside of us. And so that's kind of where that's why when we talk about people who have trauma or in their trauma is the inability to make sense when the brain's unable to make sense of what's going on emotionally right, in you, right, anticipating something bad happening in the future. So that's when we talk about we're in trauma because it's basically the, the, the wires are crossed and I can't make sense of something because it's something that has happened bad in the past is being triggered and it's reminding me, danger, danger, I get into fight, flight, or freeze, and then that causes, and, and my parental brain can't make sense of it, and that's when I'm in my trauma, right? And oftentimes when you're in the midst of your trauma, they tell you, you don't try to logic with someone, right, to bring, to get them out of trauma. You have to first de-escalate the trauma, right? De-escalate so then we can. And so what, what, and I say that because it's really interesting. It's not that this book that people are going through trauma right now, but what's interesting is that if you look at this book, we've been walking through the book of Galatians. And in the book of Galatians, we have been talking about Galatians verified. There is no other gospel. And if you look at the first two chapters of the book of Galatians, it is a very emotional book. Like if, like, like, if you just think about what's going on in the first half of this book, that you have Paul just kind of like going in. He basically goes in one and nine. You know how your emotion, when you start repeating yourself over and over again, right? You see in one eight, in Galatians one and eight, and one and nine, and one nine, he says, if anyone is preaching to you a different gospel or a gospel contrary to what you have received, let a curse be on him. And he says, again, I want to say it again. If anyone is preaching a different gospel, let him be a curse. And then Paul, throughout the first two chapters of the book of Galatians, Paul basically gives us some, his personal testimony. He begins to testify about the origin of this gospel. He talks about how he went to fight for this gospel, the authenticity of this gospel. He demonstrates how he even followed all the way from, um, from where he was in Antioch all the way up to Jerusalem to argue for this gospel. He, he acknowledges the confirmation of this gospel by men that are, that are pillars in the faith. Because Paul, there's this very emotional book because part of what we see in Galatians chapter 1 and 6, he says, I am so, I'm amazed how quickly you have turned away from the truth of the gospel and how we got here so quickly. And you see, you, I think you see an emotional Paul 
coming in and talking about this because he's seen this talk about it because he's acknowledging how hard it is. He's acknowledging what's going on. So again, Galatians 1 and 6, he said, you quickly turned away from this. In Galatians chapter 2, in the first 10 verses, he talks about how people have come in to try to spy out and steal the freedom that we have in the gospel. And then now he talked about how he had to go to the apostles and validate the very message of the gospel. And then we get to 2 and 11 through 14, and now all of a sudden he's just like, the person that we just validated that the gospel is going to both the Jews and the Gentiles is now living like a hypocrite when it comes to the gospel. Like, I have not seen so much name calling and stuff that is going on there, that, that, that I see there's so much emotions right now that's stirred up in this book, right? There's so much going on that's taken about, and a lot of it is built on, I believe, Paul's passion to be and fight and concern for the gospel. For the gospel. And so basically what we see is that we see what Paul is beginning to argue because as he's this last iteration, Paul goes into this kind of like um, soliloquy in a sense of where he's going from verse 14 all the way from to verse 21 in this passage. It's sort of like, in a sense, Paul's kind of like, he could be calming down, but he's moving from the emotional side of his brain to his parental brain. Right? He's moving, and it's like a shift. And we're going to go into a lot of the emotions that we've seen in the text to more of an understanding. He's moving to logic. So today, my, my prayer is that as, as I go and as I talk, that I'm kind of taking off the, the kind of the preaching hat, and I just want to take on more of the, like the teacher hat. Right? This is the, because like Paul is kind of moving away from there's a lot of emotions going on. People are calling people, cursing people, doing all this stuff. And he says, like, and let me just kind of set this up and say, why? Why it is so important that we understand that there is no other gospel. There's no other gospel. Because in the gospel, basically, Paul is saying is that the grace of God in the gospel of God is both God's unmerited favor, but it is also God's divine enablement. That we are both justified by the gospel, but we also to be sanctified by the gospel. So how we are both saved and sanctified by this gospel. Verse 14 Pastor Carly talked about it last week, but I want to give it because it starts kind of the, 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 the statements of verses 14 all the way through 21. But in verse 14, he says, but when I saw that they were deviating, who's the they, right? We saw first Peter was one of the people who started deviating from the gospel. And not only did Peter start deviating from the gospel, in verse 11 through 13, it also said he started, he turned away Barnabas from, the, um, from walking in truth of the gospel. And not only was that, but he also affected the other Jews that were there, all because there was this fear of the Lord. And so Paul, seeing this, he says, when I saw them deviating from the truth of the gospel, he says, I had to tell Cephas, which is Peter, in front of everyone. If you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? That's a tongue twister, right? What is he ultimately saying right here? 
He says, here's the issue that you are deviating away from the gospel. And before we kind of go into kind of like the logic and what Paul is going to go, let's put on it. Let me give you some seminary words to help you to talk to. Like, here are some words that will help us talk about what are we doing when he's talking about deviating from the gospel, right? What does it mean to be the truth of the gospel? Well, the truth of the gospel we recognize in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17 is that the gospel reveals a word called the righteousness of God right? The righteousness of God. We have talked about that here at the church. Basically, we recognize that righteousness simply means right standing with God. That the good news of God is how he allows sinful people like you and I have right standing with him. So that is the good news. Because if I were to go back to you and I were to say, which of the disciples were most deserving of God's grace when he said, I desire to take the Lord's Supper with you? You know, because here's the thing, none of us would say, none of us would say, man, I'm more deserving than other people when it comes to receiving God's grace. But we all kind of live that way, right? Because we, we have that theology that God helps those that do what? Helps themselves. That's kind of our theology, even though it's nowhere in the scripture, but that's kind of what we, what we say is it's like, you know, it's like there's grace. Of course there's grace, but there's kind of levels of grace, right? There's like level one of grace. It's like we're playing a video game, but there's also level two of grace and level three. And you may be on that level one grace, but I'm on that level 10 grace, right? And it's just like we kind of play like this game of levels of grace, right? And we basically, I'm more deserving of God's grace because I'm living a little bit better. Or I'm doing things. And so he talks about, so how is the righteousness of God? How do we have right standing with God, right? And there's five words that I want us to write down that helps us to understand what right standing with God looks like. The first word is this, it's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. When we are in right standing with God, basically forgiveness simply means that God has canceled out our sin debt. He's canceled on our debt. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The Bible also says that all people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, right? And so when we understand the gospel, the first thing that we have to do, if we're going to be in right standing with God, I got to deal with my sin problem because my sin problem is separating from me from God. And so it's forgiveness is that God God has canceled our debt of sin. But that's not the only one when it talks about walking in the the truth of the gospel. The other word that we have to understand is a word called propitiation. Propitiation is another another big word that we use, which basically means, means to satisfy the wrath of God. Right? And so if that there's beef or a problem between me and God. If I want to be in right standing with God, I need to be forgiven by God and my debt needs to be canceled, but I also need to satisfy the wrath of God because the wages of sin is death and it is God is a just God and he has to punish sin, but he doesn't want to punish us. He loves us and doesn't want to punish us. So that's where the problem is. And so I have to address that. And so what the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, that God propitiated, he, that Christ satisfied the, the, the wrath of God by putting it all on his son. So when we talk about the, the walking in the truth of the gospel, we're talking about forgiveness of sin, but we're also talking about the satisfaction of God's wrath. 
right? The satisfaction of God's rise. And this is really important because the question that we are constantly asking is how can a loving God send sinful people, or a loving God send people into hell? But that's not the question that the Bible is answering. The Bible that the question, the, the, the question that the Bible is answering is how can a holy God allow wicked people like us into his heaven? You see, what's going on right now is that you got to go back all the way to the book of Job. And in Job chapter 9, what does it say? Job was like, I, like God, like I don't want to take my case before you because I know that I'm not worthy of it. And he, and he basically in, nine, in chapter 9 all the way throughout, he says, listen, I need a mediator. I need someone who's going to go between you and me because I don't even, I wouldn't even come to try to present my case before you. I need someone to do it. So we satisfy the wrath of God, propitiation. The third word is redemption. Redemption. Because not only does he have to cancel my debt, not only does he have to satisfy God's wrath, in order for him to be a just God, someone has to pay something. That And there's a word that talks about this concept of to pay the price. It's the Greek word, again, in the book of Romans, it's a Greek word that they call it ex agarazzo. Ex agarazzo. That Greek word ultimately means that God redeemed us. But not only did God redeemed us, it says it's like God has cornered the market on us, right? I used this example before. It's sort of like the idea of if you were to say, I would like, you know, hey, I want to brush my teeth and I need to get some toothpaste, right? It's as if someone in here would go out and buy all the toothpaste companies. And like, and they, they, they cornered the market. But not only do they buy out all the toothpaste companies, they also go buy all the ingredients that it takes to make toothpaste. And so that word ex agarazzo basically means that God not only redeemed us, but he cornered the market. And so when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me, it's the same way saying that if you want to brush your teeth, you got to go through the person who's cornered the market. So he says that he's redeemed us. He has cornered the market when it comes to seeing the Father. And that's redemption. And then that brings about justification. That's the fourth word. Justification means to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. And to be declared righteous is to be declared as if you have never sinned. That God no longer sees you or your sin. He now sees Christ, the one who's purchased you, the one who's redeemed you. Which leads us to our fifth and final word is the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. So when when we talk about this idea of reconciliation, it means to be united with Christ. That it's no longer I that live, but it's the Christ that lives in me. Right? So when Paul talks about they have deviated from the truth of, of the gospel, they have now, he is basically saying that we are not receiving the forgiveness of our sins, the propitiation of our sins, the redemption of our sins, the justification of our sins, or the reconciliation of our sins by the truth of the gospel. And we are choosing to choose another way. And so Paul has a problem with them who are deviating from the truth of the gospel, specifically Peter, because Peter was the ringleader. He was the one who began to, to, to talk, to, to kind of go off, get off course. And so then he says, here's a few things that I'm, I'm upset with Peter, um, that he's upset with Peter about. Basically, one, he's upset with Peter's inconsistency. And we're going to see that in these verses. He's also upset with Peter's polarizing influence. 
He says, the way you are, because you stop believing in the truth of the gospel, you are now not only inconsistent, living like a hypocrite, but you are also polarizing. You're bringing this greater chasm between Jew and Gentile. And then finally, I think one of the most important things that he said that Paul has a problem with is the potential impact of people who have been free to walk in Christ and walk in the freedom of Christ. You are trying to enslave them back into freedom. And so Paul goes in and he says, after kind of doing this, and I had to rebuke him in his face, Paul says, let me just give you, it's sort of like Paul later back, he's reflecting on this. He says, hey, you guys, I know I was kind of like hot during that time, but let me explain to you why. And he says, I had to rebuke Peter to his face. And now he goes in to why he had to rebuke him to his face. Ultimately, he's asking the question, how is a person walking are not walking in the truth of the gospel. And then he pits two things together. It's two ways. Do we, are we justified by works of the law or are we justified by faith in Christ? And that's really that what this all comes down to. Are we justified by works of the law or by grace and faith? And so Paul basically goes into the explanation, you know, of that. In verse 15, um, and following what we see in verse 15, it says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Stop there for a minute because what we have to do is that we have to first set up what's going on right here. That the first passage, it talks about we are Jews by birth and Gentile sinners. And so what Paul is doing is that he is bringing these two, two types of groups. And he says, everybody falls into one or the other group. One group, he says, we are Jews by birth. And basically what he's saying that, that there's like, if you are a Jew by birth, that's something that you ought to take pride in. That it's not something that you, that he's shaming them. Because Jews by birth goes all the way back to Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons, right? So Father Abraham, we had, we go back to him. And what in Genesis 12 did God do with Abraham? He says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing for others, right? And so someone who was a Jew by birth, they understood that they had a stewardship and they were particularly seen by God and blessed by God. So Paul talks about, listen, let's just talk about even in the most positive sense, you being a Jew by birth. And he sets that up and it says, like, man, that's something, in a sense, that's to be proud of. But then on the flip side, he says, the other side, and then there's Gentile sinners. So whenever, you know, you, you're favored, you got the coat, you know, all this stuff, you're favored by God. But then on the other side, you start looking down at the people that are not favored, right? So that's what we see. So we see Paul is establishing these two extremes Early on in the book, you being Jews by birth, favored by God, blessed by God, all the way since the time of Abraham. And then there's Gentile sinners, the people who are separated from God, who are ceremonially unclean, the people who have all of the things, who are without the law. And Ephesians chapter 2 talks about they are far from grace. Right? And so he sets these two worlds up partly to show basically this characterization to bring the sharp distinction that's taking place between the two, the two groups. And he sets them up. And so after he sets and lays this foundation, verses 16, he goes in and he repeats the doctrine of justification by faith three times. 
three times in one verse. He repeats it over and over again. But here's what I want you to do, because earlier we got to recognize that Paul is identifying himself with what group? Is he identifying himself with the Jews by birth or with the Gentile sinners? Which one? Talk to me. Jews by birth, you guys. Yes, thank you. Jews by birth. And so he says in verse 15, we are Jews by birth. That's the first person plural. So Paul is talking about I and we, Jews by birth. So every time we read in this passage, the we, I want us to read Jews by birth into that. All right? So verse 15 again, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet because we Jews by birth know that a person who is not a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we, Jews by birth, ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we, Jews by birth, might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So basically, Paul is reasoning with them now. He's basically saying, I've had some time to think about what's going on, and let me now explain why I needed to rebuke Peter and the others in front of everybody because of the impact that they have. And here's the logic in it. We, who are Jews by birth, there's some realities that we have come, that we have stopped trusting in the works of the law and have put our faith in Christ Jesus. So if we see this here, both in verse 16, the three sections that in 16 that he repeats this repetition, he says, we know we ourselves and no human. Right? And all you have to do is mark in verse 16. We know. The first thing that he says is that we have come, we have struggled, we have wrestled with this idea of trying to please God based upon our works. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. He says, we know that. All we got to do is look back at our history. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. It's Genesis chapter 12. Anytime we see sermons, all we keep hearing is God has been faithful, but we have been faithless. Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, I believe the book of Deuteronomy is is the last sermon that Moses gives to his people. He is at the brink of the promised land, looking into the promised land, right? But But what's going on is that it's after 40 year period. The book of Deuteronomy is a book that if we understand context, what's going on? Paul is trying to, or Moses is trying to say, when God has been faithful, we have been faithless. Well, what do you mean? Deuteronomy, the first couple of verses in Deuteronomy, it says there's an 11-day journey between the mountain and, and the promised land. But then it says in the next verse, but 40 years later, So the question naturally that the book of Deuteronomy is saying is like, what in the world took place? Something that was supposed to take 11 days ended up taking 40 years. And we know if we look back at Deuteronomy, basically in Deuteronomy, they say, hey, there was a time there was at the the spy in Kadesh Barnea, and they sent out the 12 spies into the land. After going into the land, they come back and it was just like, yo, man, God it's the land is all that it's all of what God said it was. And look, we got the fruit to prove it. Right. But then he says, but here, there's a problem. There's giants in the land. I don't think we should go. 
right? So basically it says, yes, it is true. God has made the land all in what it is. But if we go, we're going to die. So 10 out of the 12 people said, I'm not going. Right. So God was like vexed. And he says, listen, I'm done with everybody. Moses intercedes. He comes and says, if you wipe out everybody, then like that, how is that going to look on you? Basically, God relents. And then what happens? He says, I'm going to all of the people who are over the age of 21. I'm no longer. They're not going into the land because they didn't trust me. I'm going to start with the people, the, 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 their children. And so what happens is that they begin to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And so now Moses in the book of Deuteronomy is there. He's about to die because he's also not going into the land. And he gives his last sermon to empower the people. And basically what he's saying is when God, when um, we have been faithless, God has still been faithful. Right. And so he's encouraging them to go into the land. And so what we see taking place and it's like, so trust God. Trust God. And so this is happening. And so what Paul is building off of, he says, we know all we got to do is look at our New Testament over and over and over again. We keep failing God. We do not meet the standard of God. We know this reality. You guys have heard um, the analogy of the, the person who was cooking the turkey, right? They was cooking the turkey and they forgot that the turkey was in the oven and they left. They went on vacation and they just left the turkey. They, were, they was gone for a long time. That's basically my point. When they come back, when they come back, they smell, oh my gosh, the turkey. They forgot the turkey and they go and then they hear, there's like the turkey, they open up the and they look at the turkey and the turkey is bone burnt to the crisp. It's gone. And so what they do, and let's just imagine that salvation is that we're trying to get that turkey out of the pan. So what they do is that they go and the first thing that they do is they take a good fork, a strong fork, one of those big forks, right? And then they stick the fork into the turkey and then they lift it up and it comes up for a little bit and then it goes down. They come at it from a different angle. They stick it in and it comes up a little bit. And it goes down. And so for all different angles, no matter how many different angles you stick that fork in, it goes up a little bit, but it comes down. Why? The problem is a perfectly good fork, but the problem is, is that fork is dependent upon the flesh in order for it to accomplish the will. And so, and that's the very thing. But what he is saying here, he says, listen, the law was just here to show us that we needed Jesus. That we needed grace. We don't need a fork. We don't need something that's cooperative. And this is the reason why God was like, I know that. He's going to say it later. He says, I already knew that. That's the reason why I put Abraham asleep. Because this is not a cooperative work. I'm putting him asleep because I'm making a covenant with myself. Because even when you're faithless, I am faithful. So instead of using a fork, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm coming in like a spatulum. And a spatulum comes in and it gets under and it is able to lift it up out of the pot because it's no longer dependent on the flesh. It's only dependent on the ability for the weight of the spatula to get it out. Right? And that's ultimately he says that Paul, as he's repeating, he says, you guys, we know that a person is not justified. All we got to do is look back in our history and see that that's not the case. 
But not only says we know, he says we ourselves. He says those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have literally come to the realization that we have tried it the way of the law, but now we have transferred our trust and now trust in Jesus. We ourselves, your very testimony is that you tried it that way and you have come to the point that you've been waiting for a Messiah and now we have put our confidence and our trust in in the Messiah. So you yourselves are not even trusting in the law. And he says, and the reason why we know and the reason why we ourselves know because we have come to the conclusion that the book of Romans have already stated, he says that there is no human on earth that will be justified by the works of the law. And this is why the Bible says it's by the, the faith is real from faith to faith. That is faith in Jesus. And Romans brings us that point that he says, listen, no man will be justified. He says, Romans 1, 18 to 32, he says, you know, all the people that are wilding out, that are living their best life, we know that they're not going to receive Christ. And everybody says, yeah, we definitely know that they are not going to. But he says, but guess what? You, you Jews who keep the law and try to maintain, you are not going to receive it. It's like, well, hold on. And then it goes on and he talks about even you religious people, right? He just talks about all of the people and he comes with this summation in Romans chapter 310. He says, let me just summarize because some of you guys don't even think you're in any of those camps. So let me just say this. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none that stands before God. And basically, he levels the playing field. He says, we got to get all on the same page because until we accept that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, we've missed the point. There's none righteous, no, not one. And this is why we have to embrace the fact of sin, that all have sinned and fallen short. But we also accept the penalty of sin, that the wages of those sin is death. But not only does that, we also have to recognize that at death, we are going to be appointed and we're going to be judged. We will be judged at death. It's appointed for every man to die once and after this judgment. So the question becomes is how, how do I know whether or not I'm in right standing with God? And how do I know, can I know for certain that I have right standing with God? And the Bible answers that very clearly. He's in 1 John chapter 5, he says, I have written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. God is not in there trying to kind of say, okay, guess, die, and at the end, hopefully you may. He says, you may know for certain. My question is, it's like, do you know for certain? If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, are you you 100% sure that you're coming, that you are going to heaven? And if he were to then come to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Would our defense be because I tried my best I did my hardest. I don't sin as much as them. Right? But many of us, that's the, that's the argument. You see, when he was saying that you are not walking in truth of the gospel, he says, listen, Paul, uh, Peter, what you're doing is that you're, you're going to transfer people's trust from the person and work of Christ, and you're going to start trusting in the activities that we do after. And he says, we don't get it wrong. Don't get it twisted. You are not, and that is going to cause others to deviate from the gospel. And he says, watch ourselves, pay close attention of ourselves. He says, that is so illogical because all of us, there's no one that's going to be justified. You know, oftentimes use this illustration, but it's sort of like we talk about if you only sin three times a day, right? Let's just say we only sin three times a day, and I sin three times just waking up, like hitting the alarm, right? But let's just say we only sin three times a day. In the course of a month, how many times have you sinned? 
three times, like, okay, 90. For all of us math geniuses out there, right? 90 times in the course of a month. That if it's just three times a day, but let's just say in the course of a year, that's approximately a thousand times. Like we're just talking three sins a day over the course of a year, that's a thousand. They say the average person lives between 75 to 80 years. And let's just imagine we go to God and we stand before his judgment seat and we have 75,000 sins. And this is three times a day. 75,000 sins. And your defense is, well, God, I only got 75,000. These cats got a billion and a billion and all that. And God is like, yeah, you know, I got bigger fish to fry. Come on in. Right? You see how illogical that is? Paul saying, listen, why are you, don't, don't put your confidence in the works of the law. I just want to show you the works of the laws to show us how illogical it is to stand before a holy and a perfect God. And so this is the reason why we have transferred our trust and put our faith in Christ. So we acknowledge the fact that we have sinned. We abandon our faith in ourselves, And we accept not our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of God. That Christ came and lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that you and I deserved so that we can put our confidence in him so that we can have relationship with God. He can restore, recover all that has been broken. All that has been broken. It's not Christ plus our good deeds. You see, what he is saying is that his justification is by faith alone through Christ alone. You see, but now the, the pundits, they come in and they have an argument. It says, well, Paul, Paul. Verse 17. If we ourselves are also to be found sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. So the logic is, is that whenever you're preaching the gospel, right, that all you got to do is put your confidence and your trust in God. It was just like, well, that's too easy. All I got to do is say, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But then, then I can go live any life, any way that I want to live. Like, that's easy believism. That can't be true. There's nothing, all of that, because, you know, we are all functioning legalists. We want to, you know, we want to kind of prove that we are, yeah, yeah, it is grace, but it's also me. Right? And so he says, so here's the tension is it's like, if it is, why don't I just go send them more? That's what the logic of Romans. In Romans chapter 1 through 3, he says, chapter 3, after he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says, now in, re, in Romans 3, 21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is revealed. God reveals his righteousness after he gets over that you're not going to do it by the law. You're not going to do it by your works. And, but then he goes on and he talks about how it's by grace, grace alone, that we, all of that, that takes place. But then the question, they come to the same question that he comes here, Romans chapter 5, at the, end of, at the end of Romans chapter 5, he says, well, if grace just abound all the more that we sin, why don't we just go keep on sinning? Why don't we all just go live our best life? Why don't we just go say, I believe in Jesus, and then go wild out? Because that's what we think, Right? So why don't we just go do that? And what is he saying? May it never be. May it never be. Because those who have been forgiven by Christ, those who have, who, who have trust and allow Christ to satisfy the wrath of God, who, is set, who takes on the redemption of Christ and who has um, been united with Christ, it's no longer they that live. They have died with Christ and they have lived in a resurrected state. So may it never be. And so he says, but if ourselves, he says, 
Absolutely not. Verse 18, if I rebuild the things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In verse 18 and 19, he gives basically these two positions, one who depends on the work of the law and one who depends on faith in Christ. And basically, it talks about our relationship according to the law. In verse 18, he basically says, if we rebuild those things that I tore down. What does it mean to rebuild the law, right? And he says that if we rebuild the law, if we think that God gives us the Holy Spirit just so that we can follow the law better, then we miss the whole point of what's going on. See, some of us think that God empowers us with the Spirit so that we can now do the law better. He's like, no, 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 because if I rebuild the law, and then all that's going to show me is that I'm still a sinner now with the Holy Spirit. And he says, that's just a different way of thinking about it. He's like, that's not the way we're supposed to think. Why would I rebuild the law in order to do it? Because the thing is, is that the law condemns everyone. The law condemns everyone. Right? The works of the law. So he says in verse 19, he gives us a more positive example. For through the law, I died to the law. So in the first one is that if I rebuild the law, but the second one is that if I die to the law. And basically when we understand that when we die to the law, we now have transferred our trust from ourselves now to God. I have now put my faith in Christ. Why? Because the law right, that condemns everyone in the law that basically kills everyone because the wages of sin is death, is that once we die, we are now, because we are united with Christ, we are now united in faith. That God no longer sees us in our wickedness. He sees Christ in his perfection. And this is why Paul says that we are in him. We are in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. And this is why um, in verse 18, it says, for the law, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. The life I live, now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. You see, so he wraps this all up and he says, listen, don't rebuild the law. Don't rebuild your ism. Don't rebuild your thing that you have to build up that gives you kind of your spiritual maturity because all it's going to do is going to disappoint you. He says, instead, die to your ism. Die to the law and, put, and transfer your trust to Christ. Because if you don't do that, verse 28, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if the righteousness, there's that word, if right standing with God comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Basically, the truth of the gospel says instead of depending on Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we depend on ourselves. Instead of depending on Christ to satisfy God's wrath, we find a different alternative. Instead of 
depending on the fact that Christ cornered the market, we try to find our own means to save ourselves. Instead of Christ justifying us, we begin to put our own works of justification. Instead of living in reconciliation with Christ, we do our thing. It's sort of like this imagine that 15 years from now that I get a knock on my door. And that knock on my door, I open the door and there's a strange man standing in front of my door. And that strange man says, hey, can I come in and get something to eat? And I'm just like, I don't know you. No, you can't get anything to eat. But then he goes on and he says, well, the reason why I came and knocked on this door is because I used to play basketball with your son, DJ. And when I was playing with him, we used to hang together and we used to connect. And, we used to, and he just starts talking about how much he knows my son and how much him and my son were boys and all of those things. And then after all of that, after talking about his connection to my son, I was like, okay, yeah, you can, you can come in. Why? It wasn't because of anything that he has done. It's only because he knew my son. So in the same way, when we go before the Father, if I were to die today and stand before a holy and a perfect God, I would not give him any resume. I would not say because I pastor, because I tried to do my best. I would not give him anything. I would only say it's because I know your son. I have put all of my confidence in him. And that is the only reason why you should let me into your heaven. Right? And this is basically what he's saying. is like, stop putting on the works, works of the law. It's by faith in Christ that we receive it. And so that's our prayer, that as we talk about Galatians verified, no other gospel that Paul is saying that both the emotional side of Paul and the logical side of Paul. And he's saying like, hey, we got to get it. The first two chapters was a lot about the emotional side. He's like, listen, man, I'm, I've done this. I was like, he was just, like, this is not very emotional. Now when he goes... In chapter four, um, chapter three and beyond, we're going to shift it. And it's going to start talking about a lot of the logic of why when Jesus says, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life, no man comes to the Father except through me. How can he say such a bold statement? Such a bold statement, especially in a day and an age where everybody says, live and let live. Everybody do what they want. Your truth, my truth, right? Like Jesus, that's, Jesus doesn't stand there. Jesus says, when it comes to this truth, I have cornered the market. And as believers, that sounds very arrogant, but that is, it's not my will, it's thy will. And Paul is so vigilant that, that no one preaches any other gospel but that gospel, that you, see, you bring out the emotional, the logical, the theological side of Paul that he's willing to do. Why? So that we might walk in the newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. God, that you are just. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for canonizing your scripture that we may learn from you. And Father, as we both engage in all of what's going on in our world, both emotionally and logically, we pray, Father, that you would be the center that we would keep our eyes fixed on you. Father, help us to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, that we may bring your salvation, your gospel to a world that is needed. 
Help us and give us the courage that when we preach the gospel, both to ourselves, to our families, and to our neighbors, that we would not preach any other gospel, but that that you have given to us. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we give you the praise, honor, and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.